Hello and welcome to Fly Over the Groove, the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensembles podcast. I'm Michelle Brangwen. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I will be talking to David Leslie, the executive director of the Rothko Chapel. The Rothko Chapel is a non-denominational reflective space that is open and free to everyone. The Rothko Chapel presents lectures, symposiums, and performances, encompassing both the arts and issues of social justice and human rights. We'll talk about the Rothko Chapel's programming and mission, as well as their recent symposium on climate change and the important renovations that are currently uh, underway to the chapel and the chapel's grounds. The Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble did a project at the Rothko Chapel's Reflecting Pool, which holds Barnett Newman's sculpture, Broken Obelisk. I spoke about this project in a previous podcast entitled Confusion of Angels. You can see the short film that we made at the Reflecting Pool as part of ArtCast, our internet TV series on YouTube, and that episode will be available this April 2019. I wanted to begin with a brief introduction to the painter Mark Rothko and the Rothko Chapel uh, for the, in case for those listening are, are not aware of how the chapel came into being. Um, the Rothko Chapel opened in 1971 in Houston, Texas, and 14 of Mark Rothko's paintings are displayed around the walls of this octagonal-shaped room. Um, the, if you enter the space of the chapel, you will be encircled by, uh, by his paintings. Um, Mark Rothko lived from 1903 to 1970. He was an American abstract expressionist painter. He's perhaps the most well-known for his color field paintings, which were paintings of blocks of color or fields of color, thus the term color field, um, sometimes a single color, uh, monochromatic with a different lightness or darkness of that color, sometimes multiple colors. Um, often there's subtle shading and brushwork uh, within each hue, uh, creating the effect of motion or the effect of mist or smoke. And Mark Rothko felt that his paintings were best experienced together and in a reflective setting. I mean, the idea was not to look at the paintings and see something in the field of color, but rather to just look at the paintings and exist in a space with them, to feel them. In my opinion, it's a very subliminal and beautiful experience to look at his work. Um, and I think it correlates to the focus of 20th century modern art, which is, you know, our perceptions of art are not literal and they often cannot really be explained uh, verbally. Mark Rothko uh, wanted very much the setting of a room. And there is a very famous story of a commission he had to create a series of paintings uh, for the Seagram's building, which was this a skyscraper in New York City. And he was under the impression as he started the commission that the paintings would be uh, hanging in the building's cafeteria, where all the employees of this big skyscraper could experience and enjoy the art. And instead, um, 
into the commission, he discovered that they were going to be placed in a boardroom uh, that was adjacent to the Four Seasons restaurant, which at the time, and I think still is, one of the most expensive and exclusive restaurants in New York City. So the only way to see the art was if you could afford to eat at the restaurant or if you happened to be in the boardroom. And he was very upset at this shift, and um, he felt that art should be for everyone, and he ended up refusing to allow the canvases to go to the Seagram's building, and he returned the commission. And and as I said, was, was very upset by this entire experience. And the Tate Gallery in London purchased seven of the Seagram's canvases and worked with him to hang all seven in the same room. They worked with him on the placement of the canvases. And um, around the same time that this happened, he was also commissioned by John and Dominique de Menil of Houston to create paintings for a chapel that was going to be constructed um, adjacent to the University of St. Thomas. And that is how the Rothko Chapel came into being. John and Dominique de Menil were arts patrons and collectors, as well as proponents of social justice causes. Um, they founded the Menil Collection Museum uh, in Houston, and uh, Dominique de Menil taught art. She wrote about cinema, um, and they were both very influential in developing and sustaining many artistic programs in Houston. David Leslie, with whom I will be speaking with in this episode, became the executive director of the Rothko Chapel in 2015, and he comes to the chapel with a long history of work with organizations specializing in interfaith and ecumenical activities, as well as working with organizations such as Habitat for Humanity. Leslie, thank you so much for, for doing this, for, for talking to me today. I appreciate it. <laughs> I understand that the Rothko Chapel just presented a symposium on climate change um, this weekend in, in, in partnership with the University of St. Thomas. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that symposium and also how that fits in with the, with the, Roth, with the Rothko Chapel's mission. And let me start with the, the mission, because I think a lot of people only see what they see um, about the Rothko Chapel, which, as I found in my own life, is only part of the narrative, only part of the chapel's story. I think what makes the Rothko Chapel very unique in the genre of sacred spaces, uh, say intercommunity, ecumenical, sacred chapels, gathering points is um, oftentimes those are designed specifically for contemplation, meditation, maybe for uh, worship purposes. Um, where this was unique in the imagination of the demon Ills is that this would be a location where faith and works, 
contemplation and action, uh, inner change, outward change would always be held together. Um, you know, here at the chapel, uh, when you come onto the campus, you see the outside of the building, but you also see the broken obelisks that Barnett Newman made in the 1960s. So what I say to people oftentimes when we have a program inside the chapel um, is the, you're doing this internal work at the moment, but you can't miss the fact that when you exit the doors of the chapel, you're looking at this iconic piece of work that is both very grounded in the 1960s, a time of questions about race, equity, uh, war and peace, and Newman making this uh, piece of work that draws you into the complexities of human existence and dedicated to the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, but the questions that that he's probing and the suggestions are also timeless. They, tra they transcend time and space, much like the chapel itself. So here we have this unique kind of, uh, uh, you know, both and of uh, what we say here, contemplation and action. So the Demonels were also very committed to say, let's not waste time on that which is superfluous, but let's deal with things that are serious. Now, you have to remember that these two individuals were devout Roman Catholics, very ecumenical, very much committed to uh, how does faith and justice come together. So over the years, we've dealt with things like income inequality, interfaith relations, war and peace, the nuclear movement. So as I said, uh, opening the symposium on climate change, it should be no surprise that we are now turning our attention to climate change, which is, if not one of, probably the moral issues of our day. So um, it's been a long introduction. I apologize. No, I think but what part you're of that great. part of that's to set great. this up because then we spent two and a half days in a very multidisciplinary uh, process of exploring various angles of climate change uh, that um, oftentimes in Houston are not uh, addressed here. I mean, we are the energy one of the energy capitals of the world, self-identified. So that um, oftentimes climate change is gets framed in very technical kind of ways, very technical industry innovations. But here we were not only dealing with some of those issues, but we were dealing with the existential threat of climate change. We were pursuing what is the physical, the emotional, the mental health aspects of climate change, listening to indigenous communities that oftentimes uh, are not understood well in this particular part of the world. Um, and going back to the sense of care of earth, uh, responsibility, they go back, say, to time immemorial. We also had artists and, and how artists are addressing the issue of climate change. We had a panel that had a 15 and a 16-year-old on it of talking about why is this of such a deep concern to young people in America and really globally today. So it was very much in the continuum of life at the chapel, mm -hmm. then framed with a very contemporary moment of how do we all, how do we build a place 
where we're oftentimes hearing voices that we may not hear and doing what we can to contribute to a movement that's calling us to account and asking for new creativity, new commitments, new practices, new policies that will get us closer to a sustainable environment, not only for this generation, but, you know, many generations ahead. No, that's a great, that's a great answer. And, 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 and beautifully said. You know, I, I and I and I loved it that you mentioned artists, and that brings me to my next question. I I heard an interview with uh, with Wolfgang Kalik, who is the head, the um, Secretary General of the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights. And at the end of this interview about all their work throughout the world and various lawsuits and bringing trying to bring people to justice for violations of of, of uh, human rights, he mentioned. Uh, the need to reach out to artists. And I, I found that really moving. And, and I find that there is not as much cross-pollination between, you know, activist organizations and arts organizations. I, I have, um, not talking about my own work, but I have colleagues here in Houston and colleagues in New York who have tackled issues of mass incar- incarceration. Jennifer Malvis did this piece about the Syrian res- refugees. So you have artists trying to engage and then you have, um, uh, social justice organizations that are, um, and I understand their task is, you know, oftentimes a matter of life and death, and it's it's very serious work. Um, but I I do think that they are related. And when I look at the Rothko Chapel and I look at your programming, um, especially under your uh, your tenure since 2015, I feel very much that that you represent that um, that synthesis in your programming. Of, an, of so maybe you could talk a little bit about how the arts factor into um, in, into the mission and and the programming. Yeah, I think that sometimes we forget that the creative process, as I understand it, you know, emanates from these sort of deep wells of the soul and spirit. I mean, clearly that was true for Barnett Newman and for Mark Rothko, um, who happened to be the two artists that on a day-to-day basis I engage with, not to be exclusive, but they are definitely usually where I start the day when I come to work. Um, and as I've, you know, gotten to know um, artists and people that uh, are creators, whatever the creative product might be, that it is oftentimes probably usually engaging something deep in in questions and soul and life sometimes it's a question that can't be answered but sometimes it's like here's my answer to that question and um so at the chapel i think we um have held this other place of trying to integrate art spirituality and human rights uh, again, very congruent with our the founders of the chapel, uh, but I think very congruent with, again, uh, a methodology that has been around for a long time. I mean, even before the chapel was imagined, probably millennia ago, because we can, we can see that, a, a, for example, a sacred text, a poem, uh, the Psalms, uh, sacred writing, is it, and again, it's art and it's engaging 
of the day, right? Dance, liturgical dance, secular dance, it makes no difference. It's again, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation. So to be able to be in a place where we are really only limited by our own creativity and the funds available, uh, you know, we can curate things in ways that maybe some other institutions are not able to, not because of any fault. It's just because their mission might be, but we're going to focus on one area. And I think to create this kind of very broad, um, and, and I'm not using this in any kind of religious context, but very ecumenical conversation is such a gift. So when um, we did the, uh, we did a symposium two years ago, in fact, you mentioned on, on uh, criminal justice reform. And as part of that whole curating of the program post-symposium, we had Ensemble Pi here from New York City, which is a uh, chamber group that uh, explores all kinds of social issues. And they had done a piece around mass incarceration, which also included the writing, the poetry, spoken word of somebody who was formerly incarcerated into this wonderful evening of music written by and produced by people who had been formerly incarcerated. So it, it, it gives a sense of bringing together these elements that many people don't think should connect or don't connect into very clear focus that they do connect. And it's one way that we can then help people see how hopes, dreams, passions are articulated in various media, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, we had poetry at the uh, climate change. The, one of the great poets in town is a 19-year-old. He's a youth poet laureate who did this wonderful poem on uh, post-Harvey and what are we going to do as a city and is there going to be equity? So music, dance, as you know, um, all of this kind of comes into a really interesting conversation, which I think is appreciated by everyone who's both performing and listening and engaging alike. And I'll just say one other reason why this is so important is um, particularly in the United States today where sadly we have in many, many parts of this country, we have cut out of public schools and schools so much of the art creative part of just being a human being and growing so how do I even know deep down inside of me, I want to be a potter or I want to be a poet or a dancer or whatever? Well, <clears throat> one way we can explore that is by having this kind of multidisciplinary program approach. Because I say this a lot. We very rarely, it seems these days with so much vitriol and lobbying and advocacy and positioning and messaging, very rarely are we invited to speak in the first person. Okay, think about that. Just speak in the first person with a group of people. We're not here to pick it apart. It's not a seminar, but just listen. So then the question is, how do I speak? Well, some of us, I've been reminded by my family and friends most of my life, are very wordy. <laughs> There are others that are very quiet orally, but they are just turning out amazing uh, conversational pieces, monologues through other means. Well, if we can show how we articulate through the various means, it makes our life richer as a community. 
And I think it then creates some wonderful space for, for dialogue and inquiry just by seeing how somebody else says, gosh, I think climate change is, is uh, horrible and I think we got to do something about it. I'm going to put it into poem. I'm going to put it into dance. I'm going to put it into a lecture. I'm going to put it into a sermon. Well, wow, now we can have this, what a, what a great place to be, you know. Multi-pronged approach. Totally. And, uh, and, and I think sometimes the, you know, the abstract nature of some forms of art, Rothko, you know, dance, music, it can sometimes reach people on these very, um, these very visceral uh, levels. And I, I really do believe that art can significantly change the way people think in, in ways that maybe they can't even really explain. But I think it can, in, I can, I think it can inspire people to be engaged. And, uh, and sometimes there are people who might have a certain perspective and they sort of turn off when they hear the rhetoric, but when they hear something else that's different, you know, they might open up and, 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 and it gets in where some people would crave the red, you know, you have different people that receive the information in different ways and just Mm -hmm. a way to, you know, different, different means of communication. But that's, that's something that I've always just really loved about the Rothko chapel and their history. And, and I, I've seen over the years, um, it ebb and flow. And I, I, I see this, uh, resurgence of, of artistic programming on, under your tenure. And so I really applaud that and I'm excited, <laughs> excited for that very much. Um, I, and I, I wanted to ask you what you think about, um, you know, we live in this digital world and, uh, been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, we we're connected to a lot of people through our computers and our phones and we're connected to news all over the world and it's a tremendous amount of um, input that comes in and and if you want to you can just kind of be engaged every waking hour with with that if, if you choose and so I wondered if, if you could speak about like the significance of the Rothko Chapel uh, you know in our in our current day life having us having a space like this. No, you're exactly right. Um, one day I was trying to articulate the value of the Rothko Chapel, and I said, you know, it's a bit of respite from the cacophony of the city. And I kind of hung that and kept thinking about that. And uh, it really is. I mean, it is a place that when you walk in, suddenly noise levels drop. Uh, it's a place you're invited to be silent, although a cry of a baby is fine, and it's great <laughs> because it also reminds us we're alive and we're connected. Um, but, you know, it's sort of that, to some extent, maybe offering a little bit of the desert amongst this Gulf Coast greenery, you know, that, you know, it's a chance, you know, to kind of get off the grid for a little bit. And it's it's a tension. I mean, it really is a tension here because uh, when you come into the chapel, this is from day one. You will notice there'll be holy books and text, and and you know, really diverse uh, philosophical readings, so that people are invited to to pick up something. There might be you know a, a text that they just discover that day, or they have held close. They want to meditate upon. Well, we don't read as many books as we used to read, and we turn to our phone and our iPad. So 
we've had this kind of, you know, technology-free zone, but we've also, I don't want to say acquiesce, but maybe we're, we're finding that we don't want to be so rigid that we're also not in tune with modernity and what's going on. Because I think the, 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 the one thing about the Rothko Chapel is, if you look at this history, it's never stopped being engaged and asking questions, kind of what are we called to do in this time and space? So, um, you know, it is, it's kind of a, we're trying to find that balance point. Uh, uh, like when people come in, I always ask them in a program, you know, please turn off your cell phones. Don't take pictures. We're, we're doing recording, but, you know, for a reason that you can be really present with one another, present with the, whoever's the speaker, the performer, or whatever, and also be present with the space. And I think you're right that we get so dialed in, literally, we can't disconnect. Ergo, we're really not oftentimes even present with each other. It's always funny, you know, you go to a restaurant, you see a couple or a bunch of people together, they're all on their phones. It's a kind of a strange thing, you know, so I'm not here... I have no idea what they're doing, but it just seems it looked the optics are kind of strange. I know it. I I, I um it, it it creates the question like if you had a nice holiday but you didn't post anything about it, did it actually have like were you, did you actually have a nice holiday that you <laughs> when you didn't post you know? But um, I mean we do the same thing with our performances. Like we we say no videotaping and photography, but if but for some people it's part of the experience to whip out the camera and just take a quick picture of, of the bows or the performers. And I don't, I don't really, um, you know, as long as they're not using a flash and they do it, you know, their sense, like we say, please don't, we say, please don't text because the light is going to interfere with, but, um, but at the same time, you know, like we tell the ushers, we, we don't want to be, if, if that is meaningful for that person to just, they want that picture to take with them. Then we let them, you know, just like, like what you said, it's finding that balance of wanting people to have a focus, but at the same time, you know, taking into account modern life and, and, you know, these little rituals with that, that have become significant to people with, you know, some sort of documentation that they want to take with them and, you know. Yeah, that's true. And I I would add, I, I've been very, um, interested in i don't know if it if we would say it's a movement but for example of um you starting to see more performers requiring that you have to check your phone in before a performance um and i think that that may have some commercial implications you know what do we call them uh you know uh taking somebody's performance and then putting it up before it even gets finished. But I think the the more important piece of it is being present and really, you know, enjoying the engaging with the the presentation, however it's presented. So I think, you know, we're, we're trying to deal with some of these issues as we're dealing with the renovation of the chapel, which we could talk further about, but it's, it is an interesting space to be in because I'll also add very often in the introduction, I'm going to ask you to do a radical act. That is, turn off your cell phone. You can, and I always get chuckles and laughter because it's like, it's really not that radical, but it is one that kind of shakes us a little bit, you know, and I think that uh, that's real important. Can I have one other thing that you mentioned earlier? And sure. that is the um, that that piece again about words and images and 
You know, I think what um, is so interesting with the particular um, dark forms that are here with Rothko's uh, work in contrast to the light, the more colorful forms you talked about earlier, was that idea that modern art uh, could in fact be almost iconographic, that they invite you into a conversation with that that matters, the holy, the divine, and that going back to those early conceptual days of the Rothko Chapel where the demon ills were being actually um, invited by their friends and some key mentors to really think about the role of abstract modern art as appropriate in sacred spaces. Um, and I think that that is a very interesting piece and I think it throws people off at times when they come here because they're expecting something with, with, you know, kind of telling them, oh, this is the direction you should go or you should really think about this. But the point is, is, is not to have that, to have that more of an open invitation where you, the, the pilgrim, the viewer, the, the seeker, you find your way. So hopefully this is helpful, but it's not going to tell you the direction to go. And that's so refreshing in a world that where we're being told what to do all the time, where to go, what to believe, what party to belong to. Uh, I, it's a it's a nice little alternative, I think. I, I I think that's a great point, and I I feel that way when I go into the chapel as well. I feel like whether I am in touch with with happiness or excitement or grief or sadness or whatever emotion I walk into that space with, I feel like that space tells me it's okay. It's what, whatever. Whatever, whatever you're feeling, it's, 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 we surround you and, and we, we support you in, in that. So I, I feel that so much that it's not, it's not taking me in a direction. It's, it's sort of creating a safe, that's know, right, sacred space for whatever it is that you're, you know. Right. And, you know, even as you say, you may come in with whatever, you know, whatever you're experiencing whatever you're dealing with, questioning that moment in time. And you're never doing that in isolation, though, of community at large in this sense, because whoever else is in there, even if it's not even, but say even if staff are the only other people in there at that moment, you're now in community. And I think that that's a very important piece is that you know, it's funny because we have all the things that we've talked about of, you know, 24-hour news cycles and all this. And that. But I think I think there's also a deep loneliness in a lot of people, even amongst all these, the billions of people that live on the planet. And, um, and I think partially is because they're isolated by the vitriol and the polemics and the, you know, count for ideology. So to be in a place with this, where you are with other people, oftentimes, you may be in sadness, and the woman next to you is in joy, but you're doing this, you're holding it together, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a very communal piece that sometimes people don't see, but I think that's another strength of this invitation for the for everyone to come, to come and together. be here, right? Yeah. So it's a it's another gift I think the chapel offers to the. Both to the local place, but also to the world, we like to believe. To come visit, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And you, you touched on um, 
you touched on the light and that was my next question was I, I read in an article, it might've been the wall street journal article about the renovations. I'm not sure, but you know, that he, uh, I know that he painted the paintings in his, uh, stable house, the studio on, on East 69th that had a lot of beautiful natural light and that it was originally intended to be a skylight. And, um, and I know that the hot Houston sun, I think, created some glare and some other, you know, uh, complications. And that uh, the baffle, which kind of mutes the light, um, was put in in 1999. I actually remember uh, visiting the chapel before and after that was put in. Mm. And I remember entering it and thinking, it's really different, but I couldn't. Put my, mm. I couldn't put my finger on what was different about it. Um, so I do remember experiencing it before and after the baffle. But now um, this, I think, what's if you want to talk, if you could talk about what's going to happen because this is very exciting. I think. Um, yes, I, I think it's you. You make that remind me that you know this is I think the third baffle. So there has been this you know almost fifty year attempt to get it right, whatever right is. You know, I think you kind of know it when you feel it and see it. But getting the light, you know, at an optimum point through the day is really critical because it's very congruent with what uh, Rothko was trying to create for that space. Uh, because in his studio, he did have a baffle, so he could play around with, uh, I mean, he had a skylight, so he used kind of a parachute type contraption to get the, you know, keep playing with the light, you know. So when it, yeah, when it opened in 71, I think people immediately saw that it was just too harsh with this unfettered skylight. So what we're doing in a way is going back to those early days. The, the new, when you come in, you might have, person might have exactly the same experience you had which is I know something is different, but I can't quite put my finger on it. So the, the, new, the new skylight will be a skylight, very similar to what is there now. There'll be a set of louvers and then a metal scrim, very fine, but all when you come in, not, and then nothing protruding uh, below the, the skylight. So it's all kind of one unit uh, designed so that the louvers actually can bounce and mute light, but light the paintings naturally, uh, evenly, and so we don't get this this really dark, gaping shadows or very harsh light and an imbalance. I think that will help just the whole the whole experience. Uh, the lighting designer is George Sexton, Sexton George Sexton, um, who is in Washington, D.C. He happened to also be the lighting designer for the new Manil Drawing Institute. Uh, has worked at the Smithsonian and many, many art and sacred spaces. And I think people will be very uh, surprised and very, uh, I think it'll feel a lot different because the current baffle actually descends into the room itself. And I think by removing that and the spotlights that are attached to it, um, I think it's going to get get that feeling again of open space. And what I'm very interested in is that, you know, say if you take chapels open 10 to 6 every day of the year, so hypothetically you came in at 10, you went home at 6, 
I think what you're going to have is a much more engaging interplay with the natural elements too. Sun, shade, mm, twilight. The mo- twilight, twilight, the movement of the, the arc of the sun through the day, mm-hmm. which I think is very important and was very important to the idea of the design of the chapel. Uh, that, that part of that sanctuary is, is, again, it's interesting, not being removed from the world but engaging with the world in a very, very different kind of way. Mm. So we will, we will be closed until, we hope, uh, at the latest, uh, the end of this year, uh, and then reopen um, you know, at the beginning of the year or maybe a little bit before then. So I, I really will be very interested in both the experience of someone who's never been here before, just what do they feel, but also equally important is those who have been here many times and what are they experiencing now uh, different from what, what was there before. But I, it's a very exciting time. It's, of course, it's with a little trepidation, too, because, you know, this is the we all are collectively Christopher Rothko, the son of Mark, is very involved with this and many longtime chapel supporters and staff members. So we're a little bit on on pins and needles in the sense of you know, what will this be like? But I can tell you this, that the, the whole design team, uh, architect research office out of New York, George Sexton, Nelson Bird Wolves, who's our landscape architect, Lindbeck Construction, who's the main team here, um, and many others. Uh, I can tell you that every element that is being incorporated into this design and re- uh, restoration um, is done with the utmost concern about, uh, you know, artist integrity. It's a, we're on the National Historic Register uh, and thinking very f- foresightfully into the future, right? Because this is about our moment to, to help not preserve alone, but also make it engaging for, you know, future generations. Sustain it and, and nurture it. Absolutely. Um you know, in addition to the work that we're doing inside the chapel, we're also building some new buildings. And I don't know if you'd like me to share a little bit about sure, that. Sure, sure. But, uh, you know, we have, you know, 110,000 visitors this last year that were head counted. Over 100 countries, another probably 10,000 plus who attended programs that we do publicly. And, you know, a lot of groups that come here. So we're building a new welcome house, visitor welcome house, that will take some of the materials, book sales, and kind of uh, gifts that will move into that new house. But there'll also be didactic materials and help people better understand what this place is, who's been here, the type of difference, our mission. Um, and then over the next couple of years, we'll be building a new administrative archive space and then a program space. So... Right now in in the chapel, we really don't do film. Very limited dance performances but because of the nature of the space and the artwork. There's just some things we can't do there. And also, because of the volume of people, we're having to see how do we take pressure off the chapel proper, you know, breaking down, setting mm-hmm. up. And so I think by having the um, the space will be very nice because we can present in different ways. Uh, but what we're also trying to do is say, for example, we had a program uh, earlier this year. We do a program every year on the 15th of January for 
in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King on his birthday. So this year it featured the Reverend Bernard Lafayette, who is uh, one of the co-founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the former ambassador of the U.S. from India, Ambassador Rao. And we uh, used the two of them to explore uh, Gandhi's impact on Martin Luther King and the role of nonviolence and social change movements today. Well, that was an evening program. We had sitar music. We had Mm. gospel music to close. And I said, wouldn't it have been nice to have the new program building for the next, the following day, to actually do a day-long workshop on how do you use nonviolent techniques in social change movements so that we would actually have on space a place that we could uh, do workshops and retreats and ongoing discussion. So that'll be part of the new new, um, uh, design for the campus. I'll I'll say one other thing for the visitor who comes to the chapel today. Uh, You would know this if you came prior to the 99. You walk in, there's one set of doors. You walk in into this foyer that has two big glass panels on either side with the doors that were put in for humidity control and for that. Those all go away in the new uh, design. There'll be double set of doors, uh, like a little pocket. You'll come in, new changes to the air conditioning system uh, that we hope will uh, address the humidity issues, and but get you into kind of a preparatory foyer, a narthex that mm. you know starts to, again, make that sequence into the chapel. Rather now with the partitions, you think you can talk, you can engage. Mm. Hopefully that'll bring it down it'll, a little bit. Um, yes. Excellent. Excellent. You know, for me also too, that, that plaza is really a very, as a very special uh, space for a lot of reasons. And I wonder if you could just uh, maybe talk a little bit about the, the broken obelisk, it, you know, its significance when it was donated to the Rothko and then and maybe it's its significance today how it, it relates mm-hmm. to to us today and what's what's maybe going on in, in the world at sure. the present time. Um, yeah, I had alluded, you know, earlier a little bit about the broken obelisk in the context kind of that moment in American history where you have civil rights in Vietnam and you know, a lot of tensions and a lot of identity issues, right, about what the future of this country, you know, what direction we were heading. So Barnett Newman takes these, you know, two very timeless, iconic images, a pyramid and an obelisk, and, and then turns it upside down and breaks the top. So the bottom is the top of the obelisk, right, broken, uh, which I think, you know, has been described. And I think for many people is this sort of tension between the the brokenness of a moment, but there's also hope. There's something that rises up out of that. So, mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, that was part of it. The Demonels were very interested in that piece for what would become the Rothko Chapel. But here's the thing. They didn't know it at the time. So there was a public art. I, I don't know if it's sort of grant kind of city commission that the city of Houston were very interested in applying to get more public art in the city. So the Demonels said they would match any funds that the city put together to buy the broken obelisk with the idea that that piece of art would be installed downtown at City Hall. They had one caveat 
that uh, it would be dedicated to Dr. King, who had just been assassinated in 68, and that there would be a marker, some kind of plaque. And the at the end of the day, while the art commissioner, that body that approved uh, and recommended the city council the terms, the city council turned it down mm. because of that dedication. Well, it sits in a yard for a couple of years. And then as this is the chapel starting to develop, it's like the light bulb went off and said, this is the place for the broken obelisk. And uh, they consulted with the Newmans. Unfortunately, I don't believe Barnett ever got a chance to come, but Mrs. Newman did and said it was perfect. So that's how it's here uh, on this campus. And I think I will just simply say that the very questions and the context that birth the broken obelisk uh, are still relevant today. So this is a place of gathering after 9-11, for example. This was a place that people naturally came to. Uh, we do uh, community events, as you know. We've had dance around the plaza. Uh, we had a wonderful um, uh, meditation on World Environment Day last year that looked at the paradox of water, how light, water can be life-giving, it can be, it can take away, by a woman who's from Louisiana that had been very active in uh, Katrina recovery, but also lives in Houston, teaches in Houston, so dealing with Harvey. So I think it is, a, but and, and it's also a place that people just come and, and just like inside the chapel. It's another room outside of the chapel where people come and sit and meditate, take a take a break from the city. So it's, it's very important. We renovated the, we, the pool, the con full conservation of the, of the sculpture a couple of years ago. And then as part of the renovation, we're going to be um, e even enhancing the access to the, to the sculpture because it's, it's another important piece of our uh, work yeah. here. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I, I wanted to ask you, I, 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 uh, about your history. I know that you've, I read your bio, and and um, and uh, I know that you have a long history of working with a lot of interfaith and ecumenical organizations, and and also Habitat for Humanity. And was there uh, was there an experience in your life personally that that drew you to this specific kind of work? You know, I sort of in thinking about that question. To some extent, maybe I could say I'm a little bit of an accidental ecumenist. <laughs> um, although I was raised in a family, my father's now retired Presbyterian minister. My mother was a travel writer, early childhood educator. Uh, my dad was a pianist. My mother was a music major. We have a lot of musicians in our family. Um, I have to say, I didn't know the term, right? But I kind of grew up in a very fairly ecumenical environment. Uh, and I, I always use that word very expansively, okay? So not to co-opt it for any one party or perspective. So I think there was, um, I think I just was raised in a world where, you know, natural, just curiosity. And, you know, a little bit of benefit of being able to meet a lot of different kinds of people. Um, I went to I went to um, seminary, probably because it was a default position. They had all these other ideas, and um, I think that 
that gave me a little bit of opportunity on my own to start exploring a question that had been kind of in my mind, which is um, the religious community as one sector in society can be very helpful as it relates to certain things that I believe in, which is human dignity, equity, life possibility, our responsibilities to each other. So it can be very helpful. We know the religious community can be very harmful and it can be also very benignly indifferent, which tends to move it more into the harmful phase. And I think with that is kind of a question set just sort of had an opportunity to have a vocation that's allowed me to be part of that community broadly defined, to represent at times, although I'm not adequate to represent it, uh, to keep studying it, and then come back to this question. We live in a multi-disciplinary, uh, multi-faith, multi-community, multi-ethnic, multi-country of origin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Reality and how do we f see that diversity in one place called the religious community? And I'm being very reductionary here. A and how do we see that in the larger community and other places? And how do we bring it together? So I think that I, I probably as a background, if I have a craft, I guess it's sort of finding a way to take, come back to things that really matter, like, you know, uh, marriage equality. Uh, gender identity, uh, you know, being able to make enough money to not just exist, but to thrive um, and realizing that to get to the kind of the points where life is more possibility laden than not, um, it takes all of us to change our, um, something I said probably too many times at the symposium, but it takes us to really look at ourselves and decide what perspectives, what practices, and what policies we're going to have, we're going to change, if in fact we're going to get to a point where life is possibility laden. And uh, uh, you know, I've just had the opportunity to work in the public policy arena uh, to do something very practical, like build houses, uh, to you know have this great experience of, in a way, travel the world without leaving home. Although mm -hmm. I love to travel the world. But uh, that's kind of an answer to that question. You know, there's, it's, I can't really point to one thing, but I, I point to uh, this very privileged life that I've had an opportunity, I think, to just, you know, be introduced to so many people, so many perspectives, so many hopes and so many dreams. And just well, as a friend of mine said once a long time ago, I've been able to attach myself to institutions mm -hmm that are very congruent with my set of values and to some extent be able to practice my vocation. And so the, the chapel just kind of uh, came about at a time when it, it, I, I guess I needed it. It needed me and, and we're, you know, it's just a, it's a continuum if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's fantastically said. Thank you. So I, I understand, I think it was maybe a, a, almost a year ago that, that the chapel grounds uh, were, were vandalized. And, and I'm wondering if you would like to speak about what happened and, and your feelings about that. And sure. One thing 
we all, I know in my life is when our chief operating officer calls me at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, it's probably not a good call, you know. <laughs> we haven't won the lottery or anything. And she called me to tell me that there had been uh, white paint uh, poured on the uh, doorstep and on the door of the chapel. It was paint poured into the pool. And then all over the campus, in the pool, on the walls, on the park, on the benches, were these flyers that read, it's okay to be white. And it it's one of those things that you suddenly find yourself in two points at the same time. On one hand, it's like, I can't believe that happened. On the other hand, I really can believe it happens because I think what the chapel stands for is there are those that don't, not much less they don't agree, but they are actually opposed and they want to make themselves known in that opposition. So, you know, by, you know, I was here probably at seven o'clock. I can't remember, you know, pretty early in the morning. We were so fortunate. The Manil staff, uh, Lindbeck Construction, who's our main construction team for our, our project, uh, people came and, you know, offered, brought food over. It's just kind of like a, a tragedy, but there was this just community outpouring of both help of cleaning up, which I'll get to in a second, but more importantly, this kind of shock that that a place like this would experience what we experienced that day. The 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 goal in my mind was sitting at that kind of tension between outrage, uh, accountability, uh, empathy of why would somebody be driven to feel that he or she needed to express themselves in this manner, and really getting back open because we needed to get back to the mission of what we've spent the last forty minutes or so talking about, and. Um, at the same time, that very day, there was a shooting at a mass killing at one of the area high schools. So as we put our piece into this larger continuum, I had to step back and say we were very grateful that it was as small as it was, but also a reminder that the little thing we experienced today are things life happenings to people all the time, all over. That kind of judgment about somebody or an institution and then actual physical harm being done, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but it was very unsettling and it was very unsettling to our staff and volunteers who particularly spend time, their day and their work is in the chapel itself, just not knowing what might be coming. Mm. And, you know, we're part of the Houston uh, Museum District Association, so it's big institutions like the Museum of Fine Arts to smaller institutions like the Buffalo Soldier Museum. And we as colleagues, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about, sadly, these days, security, safety, mm not only for the staff, but for the visitor alike. And uh, just recognizing that institutions that are positing um, unity, uh, dialogue, equality, the sad reality is that those oftentimes get targeted for this kind of vandalism. 
uh, out of this, we had a you know a lot of support from engagement with the police department and, and uh, groups like Anti-Defamation League and others that are working every day on hate crimes and things. And uh, we, can, we learned that this was not an isolated, that the, that the flyers themselves were in a font and a typeset that they find these flyers at university campuses. Uh, I understand the Jewish Community Center had been one time, you know, papered with these flyers and they're probably founded as Islamic in mosques and centers. And so, you know, I, it was it was comforting in the sense of being able to get the experience of others to help us through our time. And, and we've had other vandalism before. But um, uh, one time, quite a few years ago, the uh, the broken obelisk was defaced. And I think there were actually swastikas. There was, I mean, there was graffiti on it. So um, thankfully, it doesn't happen very often, but we just live in this world where, you know, it is. And I think that, you know, it was somewhat of a mark of, um, you know, we're doing our job and we're, we're living in our vocation. I said at the end of the day, I really would, I really wish I'd had a chance to talk to the persons or people that did it. Because I'm, it's not about retribution. It's really about trying to understand why would you do that? And then let's talk a little bit about the implications. Because one thing about the chapel, which was reiterated by this, is that never can we get to a point where we write somebody off, period. You know, that change, perspectives can change. Part of that's that first person encounter, you know, that as you get to know somebody, they become a human being, not an other. And so I still hold that invitation out that I hope someday they find out who did it, and then we can sit down and have a chat about, you know, why, and then what do you do to kind of move into a better direction? And better place. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, excellent. <clears throat> excellent. Yeah. No, this was great. Thank you so much for, uh, Thank you. for speaking with me today. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Fly Over the Groove, the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensembles podcast. I'm Michelle Brangwen, and this has been my interview with David Leslie, the executive director of the Rothko Chapel in Houston, Texas. You can watch Confusion of Angels, the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble short film that was made at the Rothko Chapel's Reflecting Pool and Barnett Newman's Broken Obelisk, as part of ArtCast Season 3, our internet TV series. You can watch the episode on our website, brangwendance.org, or on our YouTube channel, Brangwen Dance. If you're not familiar with the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble's work, we are a multidisciplinary performing ensemble of contemporary dance and music. In 18 years, every performance has included live music and the musicians as integral parts of the visual stage imagery. This has been Fly Over the Groove. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you.